I want to tell you a story, a story that's recorded in the book of Exodus chapter 17. If you're familiar with Exodus, you know the middle of Exodus, things were getting a little hairy for God's people. So let me give you a little background. So there they are, the people of God, Israel, they're in the desert, and oh my goodness, God had done such great things for them. He had done impossible, incredible, I mean unbelievable things for Israel, for these people. He had sent Moses to confront Pharaoh, to lead them out of Egypt, out of slavery. That's what God had done for them. So they had seen God bring these ten plagues on the Egyptians to force the hand of Pharaoh so that he would let them go, and he did. And then they walk out of, out of, out of Egypt, and they get to the, to the Red Sea, and well, you know what happens there, right? With their own eyes, they get to see the waters of the Red Sea roll back so they can walk through on dry ground and escape the charging chariots of Pharaoh who'd come to get them. And then on the other side, they praise God with incredible joy. It's a huge celebration as they sing the song that Moses and Miriam, his sister, taught them. God is my strength and my song. God is my salvation. They'd seen a lot. A little bit later, they ran out of water, and they cry out to God for water, and He gives them water. He provides. A little bit later, they cry out for food, for bread, give us bread, and God provides bread right out of the sky. God provides meat right out of the sky for them. So they'd seen all of this, but there they were, standing at this particular place in the desert. It was called, called Raphadim. And there at Raphadim, they ran out of water again. And they forgot everything they had seen. They forgot everything they had learned about God. And standing there in the desert, all they can see, as far as they can see, is the wind-blown, hot desert sand. No oasis in sight. No brook, no well, no spring, no water, nowhere. And they're getting very, very thirsty. Thirst leads to anger, which leads to rebellion. And so they confront Moses, their great leader. And they cry out to Moses, scream at him, I think, really. Moses, what's the matter with you? Why did you lead us out of Egypt? Why did you lead us into this desert just to die of thirst? And oh, by the way, where is this God you've been telling us all about? Where is he now? We don't see him. We think he's deserted us. And then the crowd turns into a mob, and the mob begins to get violent. They begin talking about, murmuring, let's just kill him and go back to Egypt. And Moses takes those threats straight to God. And he speaks to the Lord. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do with these rebellious people? And God says, Moses, take your staff, strike the rock of Horeb. And he does. And water gushes forth. Fresh water. And the people have their thirst filled, slaked. And Moses renames that place. He names that place 
Meribah. And the meaning of Meribah is quarreling, fighting. Because the Israelites were quarreling with God, testing God. They were saying, is the Lord among us or not? And the implication is, they believed he was not. So, that story is recounted again many generations later in the Psalms. Pastor Morrison read you that Psalm today. Psalm 95. And in that Psalm, we read in part, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. There in the desert, they got what they asked for. They got water, all they could drink. But their rebellion against God did not end there. The consequences of their unbelief, it was severe for that generation. As Psalm 95 ends with this proclamation from God. So I declared on earth in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And that whole generation died in the wilderness. Didn't make it into the promised land. In the third chapter of Hebrews, the author does this odd thing, it seems to me. He compares Jesus to Moses. Right? And then he quotes that warning in Psalm 95. And he also offers three imperatives to his readers. Now this book of Hebrews that I'm preaching through is all about theology. So there's not a lot of of, of imperatives. An imperative is a verb in the form of a command, right? It's different than an indicative. An indicative states something. An imperative commands something. We don't see many in Hebrews, but we have three in chapter 3. So, see if you can identify them in the text. I'm going to read now. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. So you've got to hang with me because it's a little longish. But look or listen for the imperatives. It's a little tricky because in English, uh, you, you can tell an imperative only by the context of the sentence. Right? So in Greek, an imperative verb has a special ending on that verb which clearly identifies it, unmistakably identifies it as an imperative, pretty much. I have access to the Greek text, you don't, so I have an advantage, good luck. (laughs) Three imperatives, you might be able to pick them out, we'll see. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. The apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. 
testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. If we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So the Holy Scripture says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation. And I said, Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. And just as as has just been said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. All right, this is kind of in your face, really. But there's some great things that we get here. Did you get the three imperatives? What was the first one? Did you catch the first one? It was in the very first verse. What was it? There you go. Fix your thoughts is the actual verb, and it's focused on the subject is Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. The Greek word translated fix your thoughts is just one word in Greek, and it's the imperative form, of course, that means it's a command, of the verb katanaeo, meaning observe fully, contemplate. It's the same word that Jesus used in Luke 12, 24 when he said, Consider, katanoeo, consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? It means more than a glance. It means focus all of your attention, reflect, ponder, contemplate you got to stop to do that. The imperative here is a little different than what you might expect. The imperative is not something to do, but someone to contemplate. We like to do. It feels, makes us feel good to do, to accomplish stuff. Accomplish stuff even for Jesus. And yes, We are called to do, to serve, to help, to build. We are called to get things done. Yes, that's true. There is a time to do, but there is also a time to simply be and contemplate. Forgive for a moment the assignments God gives us. Just for a moment. Forget about the jobs He calls us to. 
Set the mission aside for a moment, as holy and essential as the mission is, and just rejoice in who you are in Christ. At the end of chapter 3, the author introduces this theme of a better rest. We're going to pick up on that for next Sunday. But for today, we need to know that in the end, we're no longer able to do anything anymore. But we will always be with Him. And that must be enough. Because not only does Jesus call us brothers, He invites us to share in the heavenly calling. And that calling is not so much to do, but to be with Him. Three reasons to fix our thoughts on Jesus. First, Jesus is the greatest apostle. That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? I mean, that kind of surprised me again. And I've read this before, and I'd kind of forgotten. And you read it, and you go, what? Jesus is called an apostle? Because you always think of Jesus and the apostles. But here, Jesus is called an apostle. It means the greatest of, of apostle, God's representative to humanity. Because remember, the word apostle simply means sent one, like an ambassador, somebody sent to represent. Jesus is the one, the main one, sent by God, and he's different than every other sent one that we call a prophet or apostle, because he is the one who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, as we read in chapter 1. So Jesus is the greatest sent one, apostle, from God to humanity. And then second, the second reason to fix our thoughts on Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate high priest, our representative back into the presence of God. You know, the Latin word for priest is pontifex, which means literally bridge builder. A priest is one who builds a bridge between humanity and God. Now, that takes a special person to be able to do that. In fact, there was only one who could do that. And that one had to know both parties. He must be able to speak to God for us and speak to us for God. Jesus is the perfect high priest because he's the perfect, fully human person and the perfectly, fully God as well. He combines two roles of divine apostle and high priest in that one person. And so, yes, we must fix our thoughts on Jesus, the greatest apostle sent to us from God, who is God, and the ultimate high priest who represents us, who builds that bridge for us back to God. And then third, Jesus is greater than Moses. It says that in verse 3. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Why would he say what? Why is that there? That seems odd to me at first pass, that the author felt compelled to compare Moses and Jesus. I mean, not fair for Moses, right? That, why, why would you do that? It's because he's writing to Jewish Christ followers who understand all about Moses. They knew that story before I told it. They're Christ followers who have a Jewish heritage, and, uh, and they're receiving this letter, and they're folks who venerated Moses. Moses was the founder of that 
Jewish faith that they had. Moses was the greatest of their prophets. He was the deliverer. He was the lawgiver. Moses led them out of slavery through the desert into the promised land. Moses was thought to be the author of the first five books of the Scriptures, the Old Testament, of Genesis and Exodus and, and, and Deuteronomy and, and Numbers, and I left one out, Leviticus. Right. The name Moses is found 827 times in the Bible. Of Moses, and only Moses, God said, with him I speak face to face. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, remember when he took Peter and James and John up that mountain, and there he was transfigured, that means his appearance was changed, and his clothes began to, 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 to be as bright as, as the sun. And you know who was there? Moses. Moses and Elijah. Moses was there. So Moses is this great venerated figure. And so in John 1.17, we read, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses loved God. Moses served God faithfully. But Jesus is God. The law is good. Grace is better. Someone telling me about God, that's good. But God revealing himself to me, that's better. The law cannot save us. Grace and truth can. Grace and truth delivered by Christ Jesus. Moses was good. Jesus was better, infinitely better. And so, yes, we must fix our thoughts on this Jesus. Contemplate Him. Glorify Him. Number two. What was the second imperative? This was a little harder to identify in the English text. Very good. See to it. Yeah. Elisha knew it. Very good. See to it. It's in verse 12 where he says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And that Greek word translated see to it is the imperative form of the verb blepo. Kind of fun to say, blepo. Right? So the next time that your husband's not doing what he's supposed to, you can just say, hey, blepo. <laughs> That's not going to work. That was really bad. Let's pretend I didn't say that. <laughs> blepo. It means beware. Take heed. Pay attention to something. And it's used here as a solemn warning. A warning of what? A warning lest the evil of unbelief creep into your heart and you turn away from the living God. So a big question here, a key question is, what exactly is he talking about, the author that is? When he says an unbelieving heart, what is that? Doubts, questions, fears, struggles are not what the author is talking about here. All believers have those things. All believers who are honest have doubts, of course. We all have fears that creep in sometimes. One of my favorite John Calvin quotes is this. 
Unbelief is, in all men, always mixed with faith. The sin is in the unbelieving heart that takes action in turning away from God, turning your back on God. The evil is in yielding to the doubts and fears that cause us to deny Christ, to turn away from Him, as the Israelites did in the desert. It wasn't that they were afraid. It wasn't that they were nervous. It wasn't that they had doubts. It's that they turned away in unbelief from God. In chapter 2, the author uses this metaphor we talked about last week of, of the ship drifting past the safe harbor. It's sort of the, 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 the captain falling asleep or being distracted, and suddenly he didn't mean to, but he missed the harbor. A lot of us can find ourselves far from God as we not pay attention, as we kind of fall asleep, and, 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 and we're not practicing those spiritual disciplines that keep us connected with God. But there's something different here in chapter 3. In chapter 3, he's describing a more direct, intentional removal of oneself from the presence and fellowship with God. It's not the picture of casual drifters, but of deliberate deserters. Faith must prevail over the doubts and fears. And I believe authentic faith always does. And what does that prevailing faith look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. I welcomed an elderly man into church today at 9 o'clock that I had not seen in quite a while. He came back for the first time because he buried his wife a couple of months ago. He buried his wife. And with tears in his eyes, he said, I'm back. In his grief, that was deep. Old men don't like to cry in front of you, I'm telling you. And as the tears rolled down his face, I could see faith in those eyes. A faith that prevailed. Because surely there were doubts. Surely there was questions. And yet here he was. Do you know what prevailing faith looks like? It looks like showing up and worshiping when all is not well in your life. You know what prevailing faith looks like? It means you continue to seek God, pray to God, serve God. You keep going in spite of those doubts. And faith prevails in that. That's not faking it. That's remaining faithful to the Lord God. That's remembering what he had done for you and letting that faith prevail. This warning follows the reference to the story of Israel's rebellion in the desert, repeated here in Hebrews 3. And actually, he says these very words twice. In verse 15 is the second time where he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And then he reminds us, who rebelled? Who was it that rebelled in the desert? The ones God had saved. The ones God had delivered. People who had experienced the incredible redeeming power of God. 
And in the midst of the next adversity, they completely turned away from him. And their lack of authentic faith was revealed. Speaking of the recipients of this letter of Hebrews, who were Hebrews, who were Jewish people, who were following Christ, F.F. Bruce writes, they too had experienced the redeeming power of God. They too had the promise of the homeland, of the faithful to look forward to. One thing could prevent them from realizing that promise just as it prevented the Israelites who left Egypt from entering Canaan. And that one thing was unbelief. Not doubts, not questions, not struggles. Unbelief that leads to turning away and rejecting God. So, see to it. See to it that your heart remains set on Jesus. Believe through thick and thin. And number three, the third imperative. You probably got this one. What is it? Encourage. Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't hear very well. You have to speak up. Encourage one another. Verse 13. One of the keys to prevailing faith is encouraging one another, as he says, daily. The Greek word is parakaleo. It's an interesting word. I mean, it means, yes, it means to encourage. It means to comfort. It can mean to, to pray or exhort each other. But the literal meaning is a picture. Many of these Greek verbs are really pictures first and then applied in different ways. And the picture is of someone calling another up by their side. It's calling someone, walk with me, be, be here with me. It means I'm with you. That's a big part of what church is supposed to be about. It's people walking together in faith. Never underestimate the value or the impact of your encouragement to others by your words, your deeds, and sometimes nothing more than your presence. I reminded someone of that on Friday someone that I visited who re resides in a retirement community and she's not able to come to church every Sunday but oh my goodness when she shows up when she's able to come I'm greatly encouraged by nothing more than her presence don't forget that and don't you forget it If we share in the heavenly calling with Christ, we will think about ourselves less often and how to encourage others more often. When Christ is working through us, we're helping each other keep a firm hold on our faith. What will transform the experience of church for you? Whether you come back to this church Sunday after church, uh, after Sunday, or any other church, is this. This one thing will transform it. 
when you get up on a Sunday morning and you pray, not, God, speak to me today. Not, God, help me today. God, encourage me today. I'm going to go to church. I hope the sermon's good because I, I need something. When that is transformed to, God, bless someone through me today. God, show me who I can encourage today. Lord God, give me a word that will encourage someone today. When you come to give instead of receive, it changes everything. That's what we must do. And that's what that third imperative is really all about. As we share in that heavenly calling and we come to give and to encourage Three imperatives. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. See to it that no spirit of rebellion creeps in your heart and leads you to turn away from God and encourage each other. Paul was clearly, I mean, the greatest missionary doer for Jesus of all. Nobody ever did more for Jesus, more for God than Paul. He was big on the mission. And yet he writes in Philippians 3, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ, be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. In the end, what Paul wanted was not to do more but to be with the one he believed in. Os Guinness writes, First and foremost, we are called to someone, God, not something such as motherhood, politics, teaching, or to somewhere such as the inner city or outer Mongolia. We are first called to just be in the presence of the living God and by faith trust in whatever's happening around. Sky Jathani writes, What brings a person value, significance, and hope is not what he does, but with whom he does it. And that person would be the Lord God, Jesus. So, yes, yes, see to it that you continue to be faithful to God, even in the times of adversity, in the times of doubts and fears, do not turn away. Do not walk away from your Lord and your Savior. Remember what He has done for you and believe. And by all means, let us continue to encourage one another and that's not all on me by myself. It's something we all share in. And finally, let's fix our thoughts on Jesus. And one of the best ways to fix our thoughts on Jesus is to sing. You ever wonder why we sing? That's really mostly what it's about. Giving glory to God with our thoughts, our hearts, our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. And then we will fix our thoughts on Jesus as we sing. Thank you, Lord God Almighty. Thank you for Moses. Thank you for Moses giving us the law that shows us how to live in a way that honors you. 
Thank you for Moses who delivered that law that came from you that keeps bad people in line. Thank you for that law given by Moses that shows us all that we fall short of that law and we need grace. Thank you, Lord God, for Jesus. Thank you for revealing yourself in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. Give us the strength of our inner soul to have faith that is prevailing, that overcomes every doubt, every question, every fear. A faith that prevails. Give us the strength to encourage one another in such faith. I pray, Lord God Almighty, that you will be glorified in this church, a place where we want to fix our eyes, our thoughts on Jesus and encourage one another and see to it that we never, ever turn away. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and sing one more time. Here's the blessing. May you experience the peace, the joy, the presence of the Lord every day. Amen.